This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Friday, 25th of May. With me today, I have George Latham. George has spent 25 years at the forefront of the sustainable investment industry. Since 2012, he's been Managing Partner and Risk Officer at Web Asset Management. Prior to Web, George worked at Henderson Global and Threadneedle Asset Management in the sustainable space. George, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Nice to meet you. And lovely to see you. Um, Shall we start with a bit of background? After studying at Oxford, you chose to join the British Army, which is a very sort of unusual route to, to investment management, I imagine. Yeah, that, that, it wasn't a planned out career path in that sense, definitely not, no. But I I, I think in a way, um, joining in partially joining the army was a slightly lazy decision because it was a lot of my family had been in the services. And so it was somewhat expected. I sort of rebelled by joining the army and not the navy in a way that was kind of yeah. fairly muted rebellion that way. Um, but um, but yeah, but I, I everything I'd done with it, um, I'd enjoyed and I had some friends who were doing the same thing and um, and I had some phenomenal experiences doing it. I don't regret it for a moment. It's obviously a very different period of my life to everything I've done since. Um, but I spent four years um, in the British Army. I spent a year at Sandhurst and then three years with my regiment and served in in uh, Germany and Bosnia and um, in Canada, Northern Ireland and, and London. So I had a, I had a pretty varied time over three years when I was commissioned and but it was always set to be what's called a short service commission. But uh, no, it's the kind of experience there are not many places where you can kind of get that sort of responsibility, that sort of experience at the age of 22. Yeah. Um, and um, and so it's a, it's a phenomenal thing to do. Uh, it feels like a world away sometimes now. Yeah, I can imagine. And then how did you transpose yourself into the world of finance? Did that come straight after uh, the army? I did my last year, I spent, as I spent, I did my first couple of years um, of my commission in Germany and, in, and, and particularly in Bosnia, where we were in um, 93, 94, um, and Canada and places. And so I was abroad, in that, but I thought it, I timed it brilliantly well that I came and did my last year back in London um based in London and I was able to go and see all 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 my mates who I'd been at Oxford with um who were now three years into their careers yeah and try and work out what they were doing and whether you know what I wanted to do and what you know and to make choices that way and so partly it was sort of so I did a lot of that in my first few months in London uh but we then at quite short notice that whole process got slightly disrupted because um we got sent to uh, Northern Ireland on a uh, uh, to West Belfast on a and I ended up doing my last six months there and um, as is the way of these things um, on the as we were 
gearing up to go to Northern Ireland, uh, we had a life insurance salesman um, came in to sell life insurance to my yeah. my girlfriend, Sorry, yeah. and he was from it was from from Allied Dunbar, and um, and I got chatting to him, and um, and I'd been through my conversations with friends of mine. I kind of zeroed down on the investment world as 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 an area that I I thought would suit me. And um, and I was talking to him, and he actually put me in touch with uh, the team of Threadne- uh, Threadneedle, who and Threadneedle, as you might well know, is w- w- grew out of the um, the merger of the investment offices of Allied Dunbar and Eagle Star, and um, and so that's how I ended up getting an introduction there. It wasn't the only place I applied to or I tried to get into, but I ended up becoming a a 26 year old graduate trainee i became an, an older graduate trainee yeah. um having left the army and, and went from being in at the end of the falls road in west belfast um as the as a company second in command with a 130 men on patrol um around west belfast to 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 sort of checking deal sheets um uh in the afternoons uh, uh and 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 being and being graduate trainee it was quite a transition and then was that quite a good training? Did you sit in many, many other departments, many departments through the rotation system, or did you have one sort of team that you worked with yeah, from right from the beginning? Yeah, I was I was a sort of trainee fund manager, if you like, in the you know, in, from 96 onwards it, it, on the sort of pan-European equity team there. So no, it wasn't like a rotation system. It was it was straight into to, to sort of developing learning on the job pretty much and um uh, but but then sort of going through all the sort of training and the sort of external exams process that you yeah. go through to as you become a fund manager in the at that period yeah and then where did the move to the sustainable investment industry come well um i was a I, my undergraduate degree in oxford was 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 in geography i was a geographer uh, sort of academically and um and then actually weirdly a lot of what i ended up doing in the you know, because i was a kind of human geographer and interested in um people and places um and how uh how people relate to that but also i did a lot around migration and kind of how um different groups came together or fell apart if you like and um and so I, and then i found myself in the army in the middle of a three-sided war in bosnia which was kind of like a it, it was like my degree kind of in real life yeah. if you like yeah. um and um and so i was always fascinated by sort of both social and environmental challenges i wrote essays on climate change in the late 80s um and um and and i was when i went into the fund management industry i quite quickly was it wasn't quite what i expected it to be it was i sort of became not disillusioned but like i was sort of slightly surprised and slightly left a little bit cold by the way in which um, I was surprised by the extent to which the fund management industry seemed to be completely divorced from its underlying clients and the people whose money we were yes. managing, yeah. and also pretty divorced from the companies that we uh, were investing in. Yeah. Um, and it was uh, it, it all seemed quite short term and obsessed with benchmarks and those sort of I mean, those things. No, I've, I've Found difficult to rationalise and yep. also sort of, you know get comfortable with, uh, both from a, you know how this related to trying to be an investor with a capital I, if you like, um, but also you know what we were doing 
that was meaningful in the world. And I and and I, I remember having having a uh, a sort of conversation with my girlfriend, then now wife, um, about what we were trying to get out of our careers or what we wanted to achieve out of our careers. And 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 one of the most important thing was that it, we wanted it to be meaningful. And um, anyway, as a result of all of that, I, I, I ended up. I remember go, very clearly going to see um, my boss or talking to my boss um, at Threadneedle, a guy called Neil Richardson, and and um, saying, um, apropos of nothing really, there was nothing on, but I said, look, I, I'm really interested in this whole area of the environment, society, sustainability, and 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 if anything ever comes up in this space, then you know. Just think of me. I'm your, I'm your guy. Um, what year, what year would have that been? This would have been in '97 or '98 or so, and and just as it happened in '98, no, it was literally no, a few months later. Um, the the uh, the government changed the law for pension funds, and pension funds had to say something in their statement of investment principles um, about what, if anything, they did around what's now become known as ESG, um, and and Threadneedle then turned around and said, well, we need to have a response for consultants. What do we do? And I was given a blank sheet of paper, basically, as a young fund manager to to, to also go out and work out how we could have a response. And I said, and, and it, there was a kind of nascent industry in this space. Um, and I was able to go out and see everybody was, who was operating this space, who was, you know, traditional kind of ethical screening approaches and um and esg integration but a lot of them were quite new yeah. ideas if you like yeah. and threadneedle had quite a sort of what was 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 a great place to learn because it was very process driven uh very repeatable and kind of a modular process so i built a module essentially into the investment process and we we um were one of the first customers of something called innovest um which was a research firm uh that was founded by a guy called Matthew Kinn, and it's now basically what's become um, now today MSCI ESG research. Um, yeah. They yeah. they acquired it rather later, um, and they were researching companies. They looked at companies against other companies in the same sector, and they found some evidence of companies that managed environmental, social, and governance risks better by performing their peers on a like for like basis over the long term. And I was kind of interested in this and. Um, and that was my first sort of introduction, and we were able to you know, buy that research in as a and and, and integrated as a module um, at Threadneedle, and and so that's how it started. And then to Henderson on the same product and mandates. Well, yes and no. I mean, essentially, having done all that at Threadneedle, they had a fund that was known as the Eagle Star Opportunity Eagle Star Environmental Opportunities Fund, which which didn't really do that. Um, and I'd gone, I'd taken it, I'd, I'd gone to one of the directors and I said, look, I think there's a great opportunity to relaunch this fund to do what it says on the tin yeah. um, and look at investing in companies that are um, that are create, or taking advantage of them, economic opportunities for from solving environmental problems. And uh, I I remember the sort of the, the director in a rather classic way putting his, his arm around my shoulder and saying, my dear boy, There'll never be a demand for that sort of thing, and um, and uh, and that was sort of you no, know, I that wasn't I, I can sort of trace it 
in a way that fact being the beginning of the end of my time yeah um, if you like and I, I and then I I took a call and, and and ended up going to run dedicated funds as you know at, at Henderson that were dedicated and badged as as sustainable investment funds I ended up running the team at Henderson I was there for 10 years um as head of and then head as head of sustainable and responsible investing there but we there and that's where we then launched um what was then known as the Industries of the Future Funds at Henderson, yeah. which were rather than taking a an approach where we just screened out on ethical grounds or, yes. or taking yeah. an approach where we just looked at corporate behavior around ES and G, we took a step back and said, well, what's, what do we think if, if we think the world will transition or should needs to transition to a zero carbon and more sustainable basis? What are the industries that are going to enable that to happen? And what are the industries that are going to be the kind of growth industries as a result of that and so it's very much a kind of we, we we launched a sort of thematic approach to focus on companies that were solving global challenges as a route to being able to find companies that are exposed to long-term growth long-term structural growth yeah. um and that's where we launched the strategy that we now still run today and then if we roll forward to today what was the genesis of, of web and and if you want to talk a little bit about about web and and its position in the market yeah well i mean i suppose having done that then having we ran that strategy at henderson for seven years or so um but we were always going to we were always one of 45 different investment strategies and the one that was thought and acted slightly differently and um yeah. And so it was. Um, we were always slightly odd, the odd bunch in the room, um, and um, and so there was a point at which um, you know, we were somewhat subscale within there, um, and um, we ended up you know, coming to a point where we essentially the team left, and um, and we joined together with a business that had been started at Web, but basically um, uh, relaunched it in 2012. Um, to be entirely a business focused around the single global equity strategy focused on companies that are solving global challenges with the ambition of essentially building a whole business that's focused around this where the the business is also built in the image of the strategy that we run if we think there's yeah. a good you know underlying reasons for 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 long-term success in business that we want to invest behind for the for the fund then that's also what we want to see in ourselves so uh, and it's also what our clients want to see in us as well, as opposed to being, you know, another strategy that's chasing assets in a hot market. This is what we yeah. have got a lot of corporate skin in the game, if you like, that this is what we do is the only thing that we do. And it's what defines us as a business. So then is it a, a public and private fund or I, I, I no. investment or listed? No, so we, no we, we run a purely a global equity is a kind of mid cap global equity strategy focused on liquid in investments. We don't invest below $2 billion market cap. So although we're investing in companies that are, uh, no, we invest for and in companies that have a positive impact on society and the environment, because we're investing only in companies that have a lockstep relationship between their unit sales growth and, and good outcomes for society or the environment we're at the end of the spectrum where we're investing in companies that are you know, profitable commercial growing and liquid investments and you know, we run usits 
strategies. Yeah. Um, and um, there's a whole you know, spectrum of capital. And there's a whole spectrum of investments in the impact world that you know, absolutely reads and reaches into private markets. And we're, you know, we're very connected to a lot of people who operate in that space, but we're, you know, we're kind of complementary to them rather than competing with them. And then how does your screening criteria work for an investment? What does, is there a tick box? Do you have, are there certain things that companies have to do to enable you to start your initial research? I mean, we, we try everywhere and anywhere to avoid ticking, box ticking. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> It's enough, a starting, yeah. so it's a bit of a, um, a sort of lightning rod word, I think that, um, but uh uh, but but yeah, so we build a, the starting point is that we build a universe of companies that we've defined the product or service that they sell as being one that's solving a, a sustainability challenge. So um, we um, no, we we've done that. No, we have a kind of database that represents kind of 18 years worth of intellectual property now and, and, and around this space where we've continually sort of refined and tightened the criteria that for eligibility into that universe but ultimately that is just a you know, the first stage is just a revenue an analysis that brings us to a universe of what is 450 companies yeah. that overlaps with the kind of mainstream index by about 14 15 percent so you know if you if people think of us in conventional terms of what do we screen out well you know we we don't include 85 percent of the market in our in our investable universe we only include about 15 percent but we also have a so that 450 companies is obviously a lot of non-index stocks as well, but but all liquid and with a market cap of over two billion dollar yeah. two billion dollars. So um, no, it's a and, and it's it is all then organized across nine themes. So we have five environmental themes which cross cleaner energy, resource efficiency, environmental services, um, sustainable transport and water and water management, and then social themes like health, education, safety, and well-being. So so across those nine themes, where you know, the the object is to find companies which are in that, you can say, well, there's that lockstep relationship between their unit sales growth every time they sell another product that's leading to a, a positive outcome for society and the environment. So this is you know, we go on in our investment process to look for you know, companies that you know, within that that opportunity set have you know, run themselves well and run their own you know, ESG risks in a good way, run for the long term, and good, well-managed businesses. And but 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 ultimately, the first step is to look for companies where their success is driven by their enabling the transition to a zero carbon, more sustainable economy. So people are often you know, an example that we is quite often you know, the examples of what we don't invest in yeah. that is you know, surprises people because. You know, we wouldn't you know a company like Unilever wins all the all the awards for being yes. a really yeah. good company from a, an ESG perspective and gets you know, criticized by some famous investors for having too much focus on ESG. Yeah. Um, but uh, but actually we wouldn't invest in Unilever anyway because there's no lockstep relationship between buying more ice cream and shampoo um, and solving global sustainability challenges. Yeah. So 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 that we're looking for what they do first and then you know, Clearly, how they manage their business is also important. But so, so but, what sort of examples can you give of, of those types of investment? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's a very well-known company, Vestas, which is Vestas Wind Systems, is yeah. one of the world's biggest of uh, uh, manufacturers of, of wind turbines. Uh, Tomra uh, is a Norwegian company that um, uh, that builds reverse vending machines that uh, in markets where 
you have a a, a, a bottle deposit or a can deposit you can the yes. consumers can yes. post those back and get the deposit back and that encourages yes. the kind of circular economy so 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 companies like that in both the sort of kind of cleaner energy markets does does med tech feature yes it does yeah no so um so a lot of on the sort of healthcare side we're looking often for kind of novel novel healthcare solving out i don't know unmet needs and so we tend not to go for the sort of the big pharmaceuticals companies yeah. we tend to go more at the sort of research and diagnostics end of the spectrum and uh and look for prevention rather than a cure and that sort of thing and so so um so so yeah no absolutely and med tech might well feature in that and then over your career have you seen a greater move from your both your sort of underlying investing clients but also asset allocators and consultants um focusing more on a sustainable basis or investing more on a sustainable basis uh yeah um i, I think we absolutely have um no it's it's uh I sometimes characterize it if you look at 25 years of 20 years of shouting in the wind and then yeah then the last five years of, of of one's voice being lost in the chorus of, of suddenly everybody is rushing into the space so i think in a broad sense yes and i think you know, because of what we do is you know, there's such a spectrum of what esg or sustainable investing means a lot of it is 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 a kind of tweak on the risk management and you know normal due diligence just operated yes. on a long-term basis and it isn't really that diff different and probably shouldn't be called anything really very different it's just normal fund management done properly um what we i think for a long time we it felt like we were operating slightly at the bleeding edge rather than the leading edge um and in that because we are you know as i said our universe has a 90 our universe has an 85 percent active share yeah. compared with an index and the fund tends to have a a 98 percent active share um and uh or, or higher and, and so but for many that's just too different and and unfortunately the investment industry has a very strong instinct towards the herd um and yeah. um and but but really a, the the big wave a big move into kind of more mainstream esg i think has created a sort of stepping stone across to where we are and 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 then over the last few years there's also been a wave of new funds launched that look much closer to where we are um that are taking that more sort of thematic or more impact oriented approach and so suddenly we have more direct competition if you like which you know i think is, is something we welcome yeah really because it, yeah. it it makes us more more understandable because we're not the only people doing yeah. it and there's lots of other people bright people in the space now that we want to learn from as well you know we've been forging our way in this space for a very long time and you know when it's lonely you you've only got yourself to look at but when yeah. you know when you've got peers and good rivals then 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 you know we're learning faster and i guess you'll have a, a much more robust performance record having done it for so much longer so actually an increase in competition might actually bring more more assets to you as well it, it certainly helps. and the barriers to, i mean that we 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 bear we bear the scars over the years of you know the barriers to entry of, of building a new fund management business is are pretty high yeah um, it, it's taken it took a long time to achieve scale but no over the last few years we've we've, we've started to do that a bit and um and and that's really exciting and uh, but it also has given us the resources to really sort of build a, a, a sort of stronger platform stronger infrastructure deeper research resource and so on and then and then you know, what what does the future hold for web how does it grow is it is it just more of the same is there a 
yeah, additional uh, asset classes or mandates that can be attached? What's the, what's the vision? We've got capacity to grow from here, and 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 our and our um, you know, our focus is on on continual improvement about what we do. So we we keep reinvesting behind the the strategy that we have, and we want to do the things that we can be world class at and continue to. You know, we're, we're, this is a still a a young sort of industry, if you like. No, and, and particularly the kind of area around what we call impact investing is still really being defined yes. yeah. um, and um, and and it's really exciting and fantastic to be in the kind of vanguard of that and we want to continue to push the boundaries on that and to you know to continue to grow deeper so no, we, we talk a lot about growing deeper rather than going broader um, and and also trying to be um, it's not just within the investment strategy, it's also how we run our business in a way that's consistent with that. And it's really exciting to be able to kind of try and think differently to some of the norms of the fund management industry sometimes and to try and challenge some of the kind of accepted wisdom or the, the convention. And that and that's helping us to also build deeper relationships with our clients. And then you obviously said you had a global mandate. Are you all based in in the UK or London, or do you have do you have members of your team internationally? Our office is in London. We're almost all based in London. We have a joint venture in Australia, um, and we we also have distribution in Europe now. We work you know, through a because uh, of the wonders of Brexit. We have a uh, we we have a, a, a sort of to have a slightly tortuous route to which we have essentially somebody uh, who works you know, very closely with us. And for us, is essentially is part of the team, but formally is not part of the team. Yes. Um, based in Amsterdam, so it's it, it is we slightly have to jump through hoops to do all of that now. But we have a no, we have a, a a great European client base, and we have some strategic relationships in Europe as well. And we have somebody who's essentially part of the team based in Amsterdam, which is our first kind of overseas. Mark. And then what are, what are, what are, what's happening in the US? Are there many sort of specialist? funds in the US I suppose generation does that does that sort of fit within yeah. what you do yeah I mean generation are a different strategy to us um they they've been a real pioneer in this space as well um, doing something slightly different to us and they've been phenomenally successful we don't have um we don't have an Al Gore um or yeah, a... I think it helps doesn't it really <laughs> helps to open some doors that's for sure um but uh, but no, they're, 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 we we hugely respect them, and uh, but they're very different to what we do, um, uh, and, uh, and we're not in the US. Uh, we don't have US clients. We're not we're yeah. not a, uh, we we invest in you know, in, in yes. US companies, uh, but we we don't have any US clients. We're not registered over there. Well, you know, and we'd never say never. We'd need to. It's a it's a very big market to, for a small company just to bowl up in. So. We need to find the right sort of route to building a relationship. We've done that. No, we we have a, a wonderful relationship with a group called Pangana Capital in Australia, um, where we run a joint venture over a um, over 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 a fund that we we work on together um, for the Australian market, and that's been a great structure to to it. So it is really possible to um, to 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 have great relationships that are far flung, um, and um, and you know. Never say never to doing something similar in, in the US, but we're not there now. No, as as a market, the US market is 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 very political around these issues. So yes. it sometimes feels sort of um like it's 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 easier to be over here. 
Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then on the other end of the spectrum, do the likes of Vanguard and BlackRock and Fidelity offer sort of a, a product to, to retail investors? Is there a, you know, a sort of sustainable, a real sustainable product that can be offered to them? Um, well, I mean, our product is offered to retail investors. I mean, they, 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 um, you know, we had clients of, of, of all types um, in what we do. So, and there are products from other boutiques as well, which are available to retail investors. I think um, there is such a spectrum, as I said earlier, there's such a spectrum of what is meant by sustainability and investment. Yes. Um, that I think the problem is that a lot of retail investors are really confused, and that but there's so much enthusiasm for what for for sustainable investment and 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 uh, and for investors to invest both in the sort of trends they see and also to interest, invest in things that they care about. Um, that there is a real incentive towards what gets loosely termed as greenwashing, um, and there's a real risk that there's a there's there's many products out there that that are um that consumers end up purchasing something that doesn't do quite what they expected it to or gives them exposure to stuff that isn't really quite what they expected and, and this is a real challenge and and as to how this industry develops there's a lot of regulation coming through we've had what's called the sfdr or the sustainable finance disclosure regime in europe which keeps changing the way it's being implemented which isn't very helpful but it is raising the bar for the market in, in a way that I hope ultimately will be helpful and it's also improving transparency um, which will definitely be helpful and in the UK there's coming regulation which will be designed quite differently but with a, a an intention to make it much clearer to people as to what what flavour if you like of sustainable investing they're investing in and that's explicitly trying to lower the barriers for retail investors to get to, to yeah. be able to cut through this space but I, i've always said that you know i think this is a huge opportunity for the advisory industry for consultants through to ifas because it is complicated it is difficult to navigate through the different things that are available um and that's that's an opportunity for advisors to help their clients to get through that no i understand that i think it will become more pressing for them as well as their as their clients become more vocal about about sustainability yeah. and wanting yeah. to invest. And actually, uh, just on that point, um, retail investors, uh, I note that your funds are listed on the likes of Harshrews Lansdowne and, and uh -huh. AJ Bell, et cetera. So there's a, uh -huh. an ability for listeners, if they wanted to go and have a look, to obviously go and yeah. go and have a look. Yeah, yeah. The challenge, one of the things, one of the challenges when you go through those platforms, and one of the things we love to work with platforms more, I think there's a real opportunity is that, um, you know, I think one of the things that goes along with the way that we invest is that we communicate an enormous amount. We're enormously transparent. We focus a lot on how we communicate and engage investors in what they're invested in. So it's not just like a number that a valuation number that plops on the doormat yeah. once every six months. It's you know that it's much more of being part of the journey, if you like. And um, and so there's an enormous amount of material and content that we have on our website and that we and that we that we regularly send to our investors who are signed up to our newsletters and the like. Um, but it's quite, when investors come through those platforms, whether it's Hargreaves Lansdowne or whether it's AJ Bell or the others, um, then they, they don't automatically get plugged into that, yes. that information yes. flow. Um, there's nothing to stop them sort of separately plugging in directly with us, but, um, but it, it's a challenge that I think the industry needs to solve is how uh, retail consumers who come through platforms, which obviously makes their, it easier for them to organize their investments but 
sometimes they lose the connection with the investment um, yeah. with, which in our space is particularly important yeah, that's very right and you mentioned that at the beginning that whole connection um i've certainly been on your website and actually read through some of your case studies actually i found myself spending quite a lot of time on it actually it's very it's very informative actually as my regular listeners will know i'd like to close with three questions george let's take one at a time your greatest inspiration or mentor please um you know, I, I i really thought it, it, it I, I was almost stumped by this one in a way because i i, I think there'd been so many when i was trying to identify particular people or whatever i've there have been so many people along the way that i've learned an enormous amount from and and really been grateful to work with um and i was and then i was so sort of, I, it was kind of very difficult to pick out any one person, but I was trying to think about their, therefore what inspires me. And I mean, lots of things do, but I, I thought a couple of things I've mentioned maybe is that um, I'm really interested at, at, as to how, and I'm really inspired by how small changes that are well-defined or small things that are well-defined can have really big impacts. Yes. And, yeah. and and I've, I thought, you know, it might sound rather prosaic, but I, no, Two things that have really inspired me over over my career. One has been something called the CDP, or the Carbon Disclosure Project. And I remember a guy called Jeremy Smith coming to see me at Threadneedle in, in the late 90s and saying, "Look, we're we're trying. We've got a letter, and we're trying to get fund managers to sign this letter. And it's we're sending it to the to all the Fortune 500 companies. And all it says is that um, we think that that the information about carbon, your carbon footprint, is is really important. We'd like you to you know, publish information about you know your your carbon footprint, and um, it was a really simple ask. It was just asking for a bit of one you no know, bit of transparency, and um, and I got Threadneedle to sign it. And it was quite simple to get Threadneedle. It was quite an easy ask internally to say, yeah. come on, let's just sign this letter. And various other fund managers signed it as well. So I think in the initial term, it was um, you know they were able to write to these chief executives of Fortune 500 companies and say, we represent X hundred billion under management. You know, we'd like you to measure and report on this data. Um, and I remember after the first CDP report was published, um, uh, there, were, there was like a 40 of us in a room in the Guildhall sort of huddling around saying, this is very exciting. And then it mushroomed incredibly quickly. And now, I mean, CDP, I don't know, this is 20 years later now, no, or 25 years later, it, no, almost every investor is a signatory to it yeah. and almost every company responds to it and you know the, these reports are launched in on, on a global basis and and it's and it's become you know very much part of the thing and it was a really great example of how an idea like that can take on and another piece that i highlight was um there's something called the carbon tracker initiative which was um started by a former colleague of mine um, at, at Anderson, a guy called Mark Campanali, who basically, you know, together with Nick Roberts, who we also who also worked at, at, at Henderson, um, they co-authored the first carbon bubble report, which was in 2012. And essentially it took a very simple idea, which is say, well, if the um, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, that science says that there is a budget of how much carbon, how many tons of carbon can be emitted between now, now at that time being 2012 and 2050, and that budget is X, then um, then let's compare that to the amount of carbon that's embedded in all the fossil fuel reserves of all the listed and national fossil fuel companies around the world, um, and is the basis on which they're valued on stock exchanges. And that amount is broadly, and I'm slightly simplifying this, is 
probably 5x. Yeah. Um, and so you've got a problem that either, you know, two degrees is really fantasy, or you've got a risk of some really stranded assets and these stock market valuations are based on something that is at risk. And that that is a, a piece of research that's been, it's been, it's it's gone a long way beyond that now. The last ten years, the CT, the Carbon Tracker Initiative is a well-established organisation. It's referenced regularly by everyone from Mark Carney and the Bank of England, and they kind of you know in in their planning, it's kind of you know formed the basis of a sort of proper institutional research, if you like. I say proper. The, I think the Carbon Bubble Report was proper, um, but it's also engaged you know, retail investors and 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 foundations and you know, and the the whole divestment campaign as well has had an enormous impact. Excellent. And then George, a book that has inspired you. Um, yeah, again, I could I could list many, but I think the, the one I wanted to sort of mention um, is a book by um, Simon Sinek, who's a kind of business yep. author, um, called The Infinite Game. Um, and it's based on a much more academic book by a guy called Professor James Cass, um, called Finite and Infinite Games. Um, and um, and I found it really um, inspiring across a number of ways. And it's difficult to encapsulate very briefly, and I will try not to waffle about it too long. But essentially, you no, know, we finite games are, are like a football match where you have a beginning and an end, and you can say who the winner is. And I think. And and infinite games are ones that have no boundaries. Um, and I think it is very true that a lot of um, the way that we, a lot of the way that businesses come to be run and the mindset that we bring to it is a kind of finite mindset brought to an infinite, essentially business is an infinite game. Um, and life is an infinite game. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I think sort of exploring, uh, bringing an infinite mindset um to life and business is 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 opens up a whole range of different avenues which i think are really important whether it's about thinking about purpose being purpose-led in business what you know what is the purpose of your business what is the mission what is the kind of you know the worthy objective that you have um you know developing a growth mindset thinking about competitive dynamics and I think the way the farm management industry thinks about competitive dynamics is sometimes very undermining that we always about you know who we're beating or what we're beating yes, and yes. what we're winning against as opposed to you know whether we're doing something good and whether yeah. we're doing something well um and um and, and thinking of 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 competitors and rivals as being worthy rivals rather than people to beat um yes. and um and it leads also into how you think about internally trusting teams and building teams. So I think that you know, developing an infinite mindset it sounds very grandiose, but it has all sorts of really practical implications that ultimately also you know, are, are about how we enjoy playing the game, that you know, we 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 bring joy to it and are passionate about it and are curious about it and 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 play to 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 extend the game if you like as opposed to win it and finish it. Um, and uh, and so I, I think it sort of leads people to wanting to do something really worthwhile as well. So and no, I'd say that was a book that, that certainly inspired me. Yeah, it seems that it seems like many a uh, a mantra that that Patagonia is founded on. Actually, there's a lot of a feeling that yeah. you know, so the, the Patagonia ethos came out of, of those comments. Mm. Um, mm. And then, what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting on their career to follow in your footsteps? Um, 
Well, another book actually that um, we we have a book club within where where we sort of which we read together. We and one of the one of the book and we always end up scoring it, saying, "Do we think that was really good, or you know, was that rubbish, or whatever?" And I think the highest scoring book we've ever had is, was was a book called Range by a guy called David Epstein, um, which was a which the strap light for is uh, how generalists win in a specialized world. And I think that's yeah. that that are some really great concepts that are really useful for young people to take note of. It's the kind of opposite of the kind of um, uh the the sort of idea that you have to just specialize and specialize and specialize in order to be able to be good at something but i think you know so much today uh in a world where everything gets automated and actually we need to bring a range of experience and a range of skills to solve problems and so i think that, i think people shouldn't be frightened of developing their range and their range is both about experience but it's also about their skills um, and I think following passions is really important. I do remember when I first went up to Oxford, Kerry Peach, who was uh, my professor there, said, I picked you as my tutor group. I noticed you've got your place here because I think you're genuinely interested in what we're doing. It's not like, are you particularly good or particularly, yeah. you know, are you the yeah. brightest people? It's because I think you're interested. And I think that you are going to do the things that you're passionate about. You're going to do much better than the things that are at chore. Um, I think it's really important. I think we lack that we need to develop resilience in young people. And and I think it's something that's really missing in the way that we educate people today, in the way that we the way that society has got really difficult to fail. And we should embrace yes. failure. We need to find ways of building resilient people because the world is volatile and uncertain and difficult. And we're all going to fail at lots of things and things are going to be hard unless we can be resilient then we're not going to get through it. So I think that focusing around those things and and being self-aware is part of it. So um, those all feel like probably fairly non-practical things, but they're all no, things they all make I very think good sense. No, they make good sense. And then how can listeners get in touch with you? All of our details are on the website, our email addresses, telephone numbers and so on. Great. George, this has been truly fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.